Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Kia ora. I'm William Ray. Welcome to Black Sheep. Today we're going to tell the story of what might be New Zealand's first ever whodunit. A brutal murder, false witnesses, bumbling police, accusations and counter-accusations. And underpinning it all, a very real fear that the lives of every person in Auckland could be at risk. It's a story that begins aboard the deck of a British Navy ship, the HMS Dido, just after midnight on the 10th of October, 1847. The Dido was riding at anchor just off the coast of Devonport. These days it's a very built-up area, but back in 1847 that stretch of coast was inhabited by only a few dozen people. The whole of Auckland only had about four or 5,000 inhabitants. So when the men on watch aboard the Dido saw flames on the coast... They knew exactly whose house was burning. So they raised the alarm, and because of the, I suppose, the lack of buildings, they realised instantly that it must have been uh, Lieutenant Snow's cottage that was on fire. So the captain of the Dido, Maxwell, he got a couple of shiploads of sailors to row ashore and see what they could do to assist. The men on board the Dido knew Lieutenant Robert Snow and his family very well. Snow was in charge of the local naval supply dump and ammunition store. The officers on the Dido had actually been at a ball with him just a few nights earlier. The rowboats reach the shore and sailors race up the beach to find the cottage completely engulfed in flame. They made inquiries to try and see whether Snow and his family had gone somewhere else. But the neighbours said they'd seen no sign of the snows, so the sailors formed a bucket chain to throw seawater onto the burning thatch. Then they put the fire out completely and sifted through the, the ruins and uh, found the bodies, and it became very clear to them straight away that it wasn't. they weren't victims of the fire, that they were victims of something else. There were three bodies, Lieutenant Snow, his wife Hannah, and their four-year-old daughter Mary. It wasn't a pretty sight. Various bits of flesh had been cut from the bodies and they'd been generally mutilated. Uh, I mean, there was even complete dismemberment in the case of Mrs Snow. Yes, that didn't actually appear in the newspapers as such, but I did, did come across it in an account on the inquest which said she'd had her leg um, removed from her body here. This is Terry Carson, by the way, an Auckland lawyer and author of The Axeman's Accomplice, a book all about the Snow family murders. And yes, you heard him right along with obvious head wounds to all three members of the Snow family, the ship's surgeon confirmed pieces of flesh from all three victims had been removed. By this point, there must have already been murmuring among the sailors. Missing flesh? That can only mean one thing. Cannibalism. Cannibalism. 
The New Zealander, one of this country's very first newspapers, was quick to lay blame the next morning. There can be no doubt that the natives were perpetrators of this foul deed. Our native police pronounced the wounds to be Māori handiwork at once. The mutilation of the bodies, from all three of which large pieces of flesh had been cut by knives, and the parts from whence they were cut, is conclusive evidence. What's more, as the sailors were rowing towards the Snow family's burning house, they spotted two waka leaving the beach. The Dido's captain sent an armed party ashore which rounded up about 20 Māori men, women and children and brought them aboard the ship for questioning. And as news of all this reaches Auckland, there's instantly, if not necessarily outright panic, at least intense nervousness. The Snow family murders happened in the immediate aftermath of the Northern War, a conflict where outnumbered and outgunned Ngāpui Māori in the Bay of Islands fought British and allied Māori troops to a bloody standstill. If you want to hear more about that, I recommend you check out RNZ's documentary on the Battle of Ruapekapeka. There's also an extended podcast version. And it was only two years after the survivors had come down from the from the north after Honiheke had sort of got rid of Russell. And uh, people, I think, remember that. And there was a lot of nervousness about what might be going to happen, whether it was a, an attack upon Snow personally or whether it was the beginning of something much wider against the European community in general. Now, relations between Europeans and Māori in Auckland at this period in history were actually pretty good. Feeding the settlers of Auckland was an extremely lucrative business, and the Northern War had generally been seen as a local dispute by the other iwi of New Zealand. Some chiefs had publicly stated that they would protect Auckland by force if the war spread south. But there was one big thorn in that rosy relationship. The new British colonial secretary, Lord Henry George Grey. Now, just to be clear, this is the guy in charge of colonial affairs in London. It's not the same George Grey who was serving as the governor of New Zealand at the time. He'd come back into power after being out for a few years, and he had a totally different approach to what was going on in New Zealand and his predecessors, and he was dead against uh, what had been signed in the Treaty of Waitangi. He was keen to get hold of as much land as he possibly could, and he had sort of um, basically sent orders out to New Zealand to Governor Grey, uh, a bit of a confusion at times with the names, but he had sent orders out basically saying any land that Maori weren't actively occupying at the time should be regarded as wasteland and should be taken over by the Crown. Um, of course, Grey in New Zealand and uh, other people who'd been around for a few years knew that was totally going to cause all sorts of uh, problems, but it seemed like uh, a lot of Maori had heard of these uh, proclamations and there was quite a lot of unease and anger about them. Here's how the New Zealander explained the potential link between Lord Grey's declarations and the murder and cannibalism of the Snow family. If the matter be political, this act, according to Māori custom, is a declaration of war. And, if it should so prove to be, it is Lord Grey, with his mad instructions, that we have to thank. To our knowledge, that poison has been working and spreading in the country from the hour that it was first poured out. However, the New Zealander, which was actually a fairly pro-Māori newspaper, also pointed out other potential motives. It now remains to be ascertained whether political grievances or motives of private revenge have given cause to this frightful act. No one can tell as yet. 
We are ourselves inclined, perhaps because we wish it, to lay it upon the latter agency. The deceased gentleman was known to have had two scuffles with natives. One with a party that insisted upon lighting a fire near the powder magazine, from which he finally drove them away, and another with one who attempted to take a loaf of bread by force from his house. This man, when ejected, shook his fist at Lieutenant Snow and threatened, in the jargon that passes current between the two races, to make a pakaru of him taihoa. In case you aren't familiar with 1840s New Zealand slang, that was basically saying, I'm going to come back later and beat you up. Now, alongside the European settlers of Auckland, there were plenty of Māori living both in the town itself and in the surrounding area. And they were just as worried as their Pākehā neighbours about what the murders might mean for race relations. Uh, Chief Patawoni over on the North Shore, who was very friendly towards Pākehā, and uh, Te Whara in the northern Waikato was uh, also at that stage a supporter of uh, Pākehā. So they were quite keen that nothing sort of interfered with the relationship. And of course, uh, down in the Waikato, they were very much uh, providing food and supplies to Auckland. So it was uh, very good for them economically. As for those Māori who were rounded up on the Dido, the authorities quickly worked out they knew nothing about the murders and they were released. So it's back to square one. And unfortunately, the New Zealand police of this time weren't the crack unit you'd want investigating a crime which may or may not be a declaration of war. Well, they're very primitive by today's standards. Uh, basically, they had a, a police magistrate who later became called the resident magistrate, and he, he basically ran the, ran the police force and grabbed who he wanted to be police be, policemen. And they, you know, there wasn't much of a structure, I don't think. And uh, I think it says somewhere I've read that uh, the wages they paid to policemen were lower than what they paid to day labourers, so they didn't exactly attract the, the best sort of people. And, you know, not exactly an investigative service, really. Pretty much so. It was really just to keep the peace, I think. In fact, and back in those days, the police often didn't prosecute much at all. If you, if a crime was committed, they might apprehend someone, but it was up to the, the, the victim to actually bring the prosecution. So they didn't really have much of a prosecution at all, service at all. The local papers can't have thought much of the police efforts to solve the Snow murders because a month later, this article appeared in the Nelson Examiner and New Zealand Chronicle. It is satisfactory to know that the head chief of Waikato, Te Whero Whero, is, with other influential chiefs in the neighbourhood, exerting himself for the discovery of the murderers of the lamented Lieutenant Snow and his family. From all that we learn, we believe that the perpetrators of this foul deed will speedily be arrested. The natives around us have determined, it appears, to find the true guilty parties and deliver them to justice. And less than a week later, it looks like Te Whero Whero has succeeded where the police failed. A group of prominent chiefs from Natimaru and Waikato Tainui arrived in Auckland with a prisoner, a man called Mamuku. The chiefs say it's this man who killed the Snows. It was sort of rather interesting because they sort of dragged him up to Government House and they, I gather he was questioned on the veranda in front of virtually half the town and all, all the officials and so on and so forth. And uh, um, Captain Beckham, the local magistrate who was conducting affairs, came to the conclusion that he knew, that he knew nothing about the, the crimes at all. So why Maori thought that he was involved, uh, we don't know. The case of the Snow family murders, it seems, is a hard nut to crack, both for Māori and Pākehā. (music) 
It's at this point in the story that we finally meet our black sheep, because it's at this point in the story he falls right into the hands of the police. It starts two months after the murders, with a banging on Sophia Aldwell's door. Sophia lived right next to what's now Auckland Harbour, but back in the day was on the outskirts of town. Outside her door was Joseph Burns, the long-term partner of Sophia's sister, Margaret Reardon, and the father of Margaret's two young children. Burns and Reardon were living over the North Shore, fairly close to where Snow's place was. They were in pretty straightened circumstances, and they were sort of really surviving on handouts from Maori, a local Maori who lived there, I think. Um, soon after the uh, murder, Burns, who had been an uh, ex-naval person, suddenly signed on a naval steamer and uh, went off to uh, Sydney, and uh, Margaret Redden took their two children across to her sister's place uh, back in the town. Um, he, he came back from Australia or wherever, and... Uh, went to see her and in, in the course of, uh, after a discussion, he obviously was making certain demands upon her. Uh, he produced a razor which he had hidden away in his hat and he, he attacked Margaret Burns, and uh, Margaret Redden rather, and uh, quite badly injured her. He also attacked her sister, Sophia Adwell. And this was a very serious attack. I mean, she could very easily have been killed. Oh, yes. Uh, the description of some of her injuries given by the medical people were quite horrific. Uh, very, very deep cuts, and she is extremely fortunate that they you know, hadn't severed the artery or whatever. Luckily, Sophia fought back hard, smashing a chair over Joseph's head. Bystanders heard the crashing and managed to tackle him to the floor. He was taken away and charged with attempted murder and assault. And it wasn't the first time Joseph Burns had been accused of a crime. By the time they'd ended up living on the North Shore, I think Burns had virtually become unemployable over in the town. Uh, they were both well known as, as very heavy drinkers, not that that was at all unusual in colonial Auckland, I might add, but they seemed to be more so than a lot of other people. Uh, Burns had a terrible temper and I think he had lost one job in 1845 after he'd uh, assaulted his foreman. Uh, he then gone and got a job over on the shore as a stockman, uh, but he got sacked from that job as a suspicion that he was stealing and butchering some of his employer's stock. So he lost as they lost their house as a result of that. So he is very much on a downward spiral, I think. And there's some suggestion that he might have been sort of suffering some brain damage, I guess, from a from a head injury in his past. Yes, this, this came up later on, and it does seem to be uh, supported by some, some medical evidence. Uh, the story is that he fell from a master, apparently upon HMS victory earlier in his uh, naval career, and had suffered head injuries, possibly a, a broken skull. So it's from the way he's behaving towards the end, it seems quite uh, realistic to say that the, you know, there was a mixture of, a, of brain injury plus alcoholism, which uh, didn't exactly improve matters. By the way, the HMS Victory Joseph Burns was supposedly injured on is the same ship which Vice Admiral Nelson sailed in the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805. Anyway, in court, Joseph said the near-fatal attack on Margaret Reardon, which included slashing her throat four times, was due to an argument the pair were having. Basically, uh, at the time when he was charged with uh, uh, the attack upon her, uh, the evidence given suggested that he was wanting to leave the country. And, he was, and somewhere along the line, uh, he must have perhaps become eligible for some sort of crown grant of land. He was wanting to sell his rights under this grant to, to fund his trip away. 
Plus, he also wanted to take with him the eldest child. And Margaret Redden apparently had the papers relating to the land, and she was adamant that she wasn't going to hand them over, and also that uh, he wasn't going to go away uh, with, with the child. That was the explanation given at the time. Now, this story about what precipitated the attack is going to change, but we'll come back to that. Because this is the point in the story where the snow murders and the attempted killing of Margaret Reardon come together. The Inspector of Police, Captain Atkins, spoke to Margaret Reardon the day after Joseph's sentencing and asked her what she knew of the Snow family murders. Somewhat cryptically, she replied that Joseph Burns might be able to give the police information about the killings. The inspector suggested she go down to the prison to talk to him, and somewhat astonishingly, she agreed. Margaret goes to prison and talks privately to Burns in his cell. This is despite him having just been sentenced less than 24 hours ago for attacking her. We have no idea what happened inside that cell, but when Margaret comes out, both she and Joseph tell the police that two of their neighbours were the ones who murdered the Snow family. At a preliminary hearing in the magistrate's court, Margaret Reardon stepped up to testify. She said that she was at home with Joseph on the night of the snow murders when one of their neighbours, Thomas Duda, came to the door. Duda asked Joseph to come talk to him somewhere privately. Margaret thought something suspicious was happening, so she followed them and hid in some bushes to eavesdrop. She claimed she heard Duda say this. Lieutenant Snow has got a swag of money from Auckland, and we must have it. Margaret said Joseph replied, But I'll never consent to brew my hands in innocent blood. This is only little Mary, and I'll manage that. But it must be done tonight. If you don't want to come, I'll manage it myself. Oh, where shall we put the stuff? We can bury it, under the flagstaff. Earlier in the day, Joseph Burns had testified the story Margaret told was true, but that he only kept watch and took no part in the actual killing. He put the blame for that on Thomas Duda and Duda's brother-in-law, a man called Oliver. Neither Margaret nor Joseph seemed to have realised that admitting their knowledge of the killings could put them in serious legal trouble. In fact, Burns could have been convicted of murder. But, as we've said previously, good decision-making wasn't Joseph Burns' strong suit, and he wasn't about to improve any time soon. Just as Margaret is giving her testimony, there's an interruption. All of a sudden, someone rushed it and told the assembled court that Burns had tried to kill himself in prison. He'd slit his throat or something similar. He seemed to be fairly handy with a knife. Uh, but uh, So they adjourned the court, and the, the colonial surgeon, Dr Johnson, who was present at the court, rushed up to the hospital to see what was going on and to render medical assistance. And I think a couple of hours later... He came back and basically said that uh, no, Burns wasn't going to die. He was, he was OK. He'd been attended to. But then he told the court that Burns had said that uh, the allegations he'd made against uh, the two gentlemen, other gentlemen on the North Shore were, were untrue. Uh, it's a little bit unclear what happened after that. It wasn't until the next day that um, Duda and Oliver were discharged. But I get the impression that it might have taken some hours before they finally perhaps persuaded Margaret Redden that she should accept the inevitable and change her story. 
To be honest, it seems like the whole town was sceptical of Margaret and Joseph's story from the very beginning. The New Zealander put it like this. Margaret Reardon's evidence, the only testimony that bore against Duda, has been received by the public universally, and we believe also by the bench, with a degree of caution amounting to suspicion, owing to the notoriously bad character of the woman. The paper went on to speculate that the reason Duda and Oliver were targeted for these false accusations was revenge. Duda, it turns out, was the man who got Joseph fired for stealing and butchering his employer's stock, and Oliver was the one who took Joseph's job after he left. From what has transpired, it is not unlikely that the accuser will occupy the place of the accused. Captain Atkins is on the scent. We must say that he hunts well. The police are industriously following up the clue which has been found respecting the late murders, and we believe there is an increasing probability of the guilt being speedily brought home to the right parties. It is an old and a true saying, murder will out. It seemed obvious to everyone that the only reason Joseph Burns would go around making false accusations about the snow murders was if he was the actual killer. Joseph Burns is charged with the murder of Lieutenant Snow, although, strangely, he's never charged with killing Snow's wife and daughter. Possibly that's because the prosecutors wanted to keep their options open for further charges if the prosecution failed, but it's probably more likely that the authorities considered their deaths less important. Victorian-era sexism at its finest. Anyway, by this stage, Margaret Reardon has changed her story and is now saying it was Joseph alone who committed the crime. But she's not exactly the ideal witness. They knew about her perjury, but they seemed to deliberately not put her on trial in the same uh, session of the Supreme Court. They left it for another three months and dealt with her later. So I suppose if you you had both their names on the list for a trial in the same session of the court, it would look a bit strange. But yes, it was hard to see her being sort of a very reliable witness, and this is commented on in the newspapers quite a bit. But... uh, I think uh, everyone was very keen to convict Burns of the offence and uh, they had to make use of what they had. There were a few other witnesses in the trial. One who got particular attention was the owner of a pub where Margaret and Joseph were drinking shortly after the murders. That was sort of to to bring in the fact that there was evidence that Burns and Redden were absolutely stony broke before the murder, but a couple of days afterwards they were in the pub uh, spending up large and uh, you know drinking, and uh, also the fact that Redden was there and was sort of uh, encouraging Burns to probably spend more of his ill-gotten gains on alcohol for her than he probably wanted, but it seems like she had some sort of hold over him. Now this is an interesting point. What was Margaret Redden's role in the murder of the Snow family? At the trial, she said that she and Joseph were on a boat back to Devonport from Auckland on the day of the murders, and that Joseph said this to her. I've heard today that Mr Snow got some money. Many actions I've done for the Queen. I may as well do one for myself. By this, he presumably meant that he'd killed people in the service of the Royal Navy, which made it okay for him to kill the Snows for his own benefit. Margaret then told the court this. I said, oh, Joe, don't. I am not your wife. I said these words because I'm very fond of drink and I was afraid I might tell of it. If this is true, it's a very strange way to respond to someone threatening murder. Margaret's first thought wasn't to consider how awful and wrong it would be to murder their neighbours, including a four-year-old child. 
Instead, she was thinking about her legal position and the fact that any evidence she drunkenly let slip would be admissible in court because she wasn't legally married to Joseph and couldn't claim spousal privilege. Anyway, she went on to talk about how Joseph went out that night with a hatchet and bayonet and came back telling her the deed was done. I told him not to tell me about it, to which he replied, if I said a word about it, he would kill me. And according to Margaret's testimony, this is what precipitated the attack at her sister's house a month after the murders, where Joseph very nearly killed her with that razor blade. Margaret said the day before the attack, Joseph came to the door saying he wanted to marry her so that she wouldn't be able to testify against him. She refused and threatened to spill the beans if Joseph didn't leave. He then said he would drink my heart's blood. The next day he came and severely wounded me by cutting my throat. There are a couple of different ways we could interpret Margaret Reardon's role in the Snow family murders. First, we could take her on face value, that she was genuinely terrified of Joseph, and that's why she never came forward to tell the authorities what she knew about the killings. But Terry Carson doesn't buy that. I think she is very much involved, possibly, in the planning and the talking about it. And there seems to be clear evidence from the publican and so forth that she, you know, indirectly benefited from some of the proceeds of the crime. I haven't been able to convince myself that she's actually present on the on the day or on the night of the murder, though. Um, I th- when I started out researching, I thought I might come to that conclusion, but at the end of the day, I, I couldn't be sure of that, and I didn't couldn't reach that conclusion. I mean, why don't you buy this sort of argument that she was... Um, a victim of domestic violence. I mean, obviously, he did actually try to kill her in a you know fairly horrific attack. I mean, that that would sort of be. I, I mean, I would sort of think that, and on, on its face, was enough to sort of convince that she had very good reason to be frightened of him. Oh yes, I, I, t- I take that point, con- you know, completely. Um, it's probably a bit of a subtle distinction, but. Um, before that, there was no sort of evidence of any ongoing behaviour that suggested that she was necessarily frightened of him. I mean, she had met with him on a number of occasions since he'd come back from Sydney, apparently of her own free will. There was evidence that she'd gone out on a couple of occasions and she was quite happy to disagree with him and tell him to go away and so forth. Certainly the attack on, on her was, was, was a horrific thing, but um, I don't think it was part of a pattern of domestic violence as such. It was I think it was more of a one off violent act to try and try and kill her and keep her quiet. I think she was much more involved of her own free will in a lot of the events than that would suggest. And what is the evidence for that? Is it partly this thing from the publican that sort of she seems to be almost using her knowledge of the murder to sort of um uh blackmail him almost? Yes, that that was. Uh, I think that's 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 quite strong. I mean, this. I mean, if she had been totally horrified by what he had done, I mean, would she have gone to the hotel with him? Would she have asked him to buy her her booze? And would she have sort of twisted his arm and sort of said, "Well, look, if you don't buy me another drink, I'll tell people where you got your money from." That sort of thing. Plus, there was a couple of incidents um, when she stayed with her sister when Burns turned up, and she seemed quite. And he was causing problems, and she seemed quite happy to go out and confront him. And I think she pretty much said to him, look, if you don't go away and behave yourself, I'll tell people what you did sort of thing. Well, if she was absolutely terrified of him, would she have sort of done those things? I don't know. And plus there's also the fact that she went up to the prison um, the day after he'd been convicted of the assault upon her, and apparently was 
must have spent some time in the prison alone with him where when they both sort of cooked up this scheme to um, blame um, or accuse the other two people of committing the crime. The Chief Justice presiding over Joseph Byrne's murder trial seems to have shared Terry Carson's reservations about Margaret. He gave this warning about her evidence when he was summing up the case for the jury. It's obvious that this testimony is to be regarded with extreme caution, nay, with great suspicion, for she admitted to you today that she has given testimony before on this very matter which she knew at the time not to be true. Testimony so falsely born went to lay guilt of the perpetration of this fearful crime at the door of a person whom she believed innocent. This frightful degree of depravity cannot but throw grave suspicion on her testimony. In spite of that dire warning, it took the jury just 45 minutes to convict Joseph Burns of murder. He was sentenced to death by hanging. The first European to be judicially executed in New Zealand history. And this execution had some interesting political implications. The authorities were, in a way, or dare I say it, quite keyed to hang a European because um, they wanted to show uh, Maori that the, the justice system applied to everyone. And, of course, somewhat unfortunately, the first judicial execution had been for a young Maori fellow. And there's quite a story involved in that because at the time they had someone else who'd been accused of murder and they sort of juggled things to try and deal with the um, the European first. But he, 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 got, he didn't get convicted of the murder, whereas the young Maori chap did, so he became the first person. And there were some mutterings that uh, this, this Pākehā justice system wasn't particularly fair that the, the European got off, but the, the Maori chap got hung. And then there was a, one or two other cases where uh, sort of a similar thing sort of happened where people didn't get convicted as was thought. Perhaps in order to ram that political point home, Māori from all around the region were invited to attend the execution, which was held in the most dramatic way possible. It was decided that he'd be hung over at Devonport, and this is, uh, I think, a bit of a throwback to, to the old days of English law where they used to hang highwaymen at the nearest crossroads and leave their bodies in the gibbet sort of thing, which had only been sort of abolished in English law a few years previously. So he was to take a road across uh, with due ceremony to uh, Devonport to be executed pretty much on the spot where he'd committed his crime. So it was sort of a bit of um, Old Testament-type retribution, I suppose, you know, the idea being that uh, apart from the thought that public executions were uh, a good lesson to, to everyone else to behave themselves, I think also there was this idea that as, as the person being hung was standing there, his last sort of sight would be of the place where he committed his heinous crimes and he'd go to meet his maker with that imprinted on his brain or something like that. Funnily enough, it was never explained why Joseph Burns dismembered his victims or removed some of their flesh. Presumably it was to shift the suspicion onto Māori, which seems bloody ungrateful given that, as Terry mentioned earlier, Joseph and Margaret were essentially living on handouts from local Māori at the time. Talk about biting the hand that feeds you. Maybe the reason it wasn't mentioned is that there's some weird Victorian prudishness going on, or maybe the newspapers and justice authorities felt embarrassed over their assumption that Māori must have been to blame and just didn't want to open that can of worms again. Regardless, questions about the mutilation never came up at trial, and Joseph didn't mention it in the confession he wrote the night before his execution. He did that. He was sort of, I've spent virtually the whole night up with... Uh Reverend um, Churton, the um, colonial chaplain, plus the, the sheriff of the 
uh, Supreme Court who was uh, in charge of the carrying out the hanging. And yes, they encouraged him to, to make a true, con- a full confession and he made it and he declared it was true and placed his hand on the Bible and so on and so forth. But basically it was very much saying that Margaret Redden was there with him and that she took part in the killing and the slaying and it was her idea. And, and yet she's never charged with murder. No, it's sort of, uh, once again, um, uh, it's a question of whether he was telling the truth or whether he was trying to get revenge on the woman who had basically, at the end of the day, shopped him to the authorities, I suppose. But while Margaret avoided a murder charge, she was still going to face trial for perjury. Even today, that's a very serious crime, but in the 1840s, it was an even bigger deal. We have to bear in mind that you know, these days we hear about murder cases, all sorts of scientific evidence and DNA and, and heaven knows what. Uh, back in those days, it was pretty much based upon circumstantial evidence and what witnesses said. So if the witness lied, people could be hung because uh, they didn't waste much time because uh, I think uh, Burns was hung within about 14 or 15 days of the sentence being passed upon him. Margaret's defence in the perjury trial was that she was, in fact, in terror of her partner. A statement was read to the jury on her behalf. Presumably it was written out for her by the local reverend because she herself was illiterate and wasn't represented by a lawyer in court. I humbly beg your honour and gentlemen of the jury that Joseph Burns, by threats of bringing false charges against me to take away my life by implicating me in the murder of Lieutenant Snow and also to murder me... The reality of such threats I had much reason to dread, being already the victim of his ferocity. Acting under fear of these threats and feeling the natural attachment to the father of my unfortunate children, I merely related the case as he told or ordered me. Your Honour and gentlemen of the jury are aware of my share of suffering, being left a deformed object with two helpless children. The charge of willful as preferred against me never can be applied to any person compelled under fear. The execution of such threats is clearly proved in his trying to destroy my life, being also in such a feeble state of body and mind, with my head half off, I scarcely knew what I did at the time. The humane intention of British law is in all cases where there is doubt existing to give the prisoner the benefit of the doubt. This statement was aimed at undermining one of the two major legal points the prosecution had to prove. The first point was that she lied in court, which was pretty much undeniable. The second was that she lied deliberately or willfully, as it's put in that statement. What Margaret was saying was that her lying wasn't willful because not only was she frightened that Joseph would kill her if she didn't lie, she was also so badly affected by his previous attack on her that she didn't really know what she was doing anyway. I'll leave it to you to decide whether you believe her on that point, but the jury convicted her within five minutes. The judge said this in sentencing. You, Margaret Reardon have been convicted of perjury, of perjury in its worst form, for the false testimony that you knowingly and deliberately bore tended to fix the charge of murder on an innocent man. It's true that you made some small reparation for your crime by openly confessing it, and the defence of which was read on your behalf yesterday contained no denial of your guilt. It was merely an attempt to palliate it, by alleging that you had acted under the pressure of extreme fear for your own safety. But whatever may have been the evil influences wrought upon you, either from without or from within, they can form no excuse for so foul a crime as yours. 
The sentence of the court is that you, Margaret Reardon, be transported beyond the seas to such a place as His Excellency the Governor shall appoint for a term of seven years. It's quite interesting because uh, over a hundred people were sent across uh, to Van Diemen's Land, Tasmania, in the early well, that period of the 19th century, uh, but she was the, the one and only woman. And of course, uh, probably the sad irony is the fact that uh, she had originally sailed to um, Australia as a free woman, so it was rather ironical that she then goes back again as a, as a convict. And as far as sort of, you know, places to be transported to, Tasmania is pretty much the worst of the worst. Yes, it was a pretty pretty severe sort of regime over there, that's for sure. And uh, the evidence seems to be that she didn't exactly always behave herself over there, but eventually she got released, she was married and had another family and it would seem lived a reasonably uh, quiet life in Victoria until she finally died in age in the early 70s. You can still find some traces of the Snow family murders in Devonport today. For one thing, there's still a Duda Street named after the neighbour who was wrongly accused of the murder. People in the neighbourhood have actually occasionally dug up old silverware, which some think might be relics from the Snow's burned-down house. And near where that house once stood, on the waterfront, on the corner of King Edward Parade and May Street, is an old weathered plaque. It reads... This is the site of the murder of Lieutenant Snow and his family in 1837 and the subsequent execution of the murderer, Joseph Burns. Special thanks to Terry Carson. His book is The Axeman's Accomplice. In just a sec, I'm going to give you an advance look at the next episode of Black Sheep. But first, remember, you can subscribe to this podcast. Also, give us a rating on iTunes, tell a friend. Uh, There are lots of ways to subscribe, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, or you can subscribe on RNZ's app. While you're on RNZ's app, why not have a listen to Voices? It's a weekly podcast which tells the stories of migrant communities in New Zealand. It's a really excellent show. Next time on Black Sheep, the story of a British Army soldier who turned traitor and join Taranaki Māori right in what might be the most brutal moment of the New Zealand wars. He managed to survive many confrontations in in life-threatening situations. He must have been a gifted and instinctive orator and a reader of conflict and dangerous predicaments. I mean, I don't know how he sat between the cracks of the Pākehā world and the Māori world, but he managed to instinctively zigzag through it and survive. Um, But his track record as a bit of a bullshitter and a troublemaker when he was younger stood him in good stead as a mature survivalist. Black Sheep is written and presented by me, William Ray. The executive producer is Tim Watkin, and our sound engineer was William Saunders. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.